this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. First of all, thank you for taking some time out of this very uh, uncertain moment we're both experiencing. Uh, you were very kind. You uh, you replied to my message, and I didn't realize it was Easter Sunday when I sent you a message, and you were very, very generous with your time, and uh, you even agreed to do this on a fairly short notice, so I, I appreciate that. And I know these are these are strange times, even when you're at home among relatives it might make it even stranger that you're stuck with people that you're not used to being stuck with all the time. Um, but this type of isolation uh, is something I've never experienced before. Uh, this type of social distancing, I think most of us have never really had to deal with. Uh, but you and I are not from a place that's known for social distancing or isolation. And I know you're not Lebanese, but I consider you Lebanese at this point. You've spent too much time there. And I think you're more in tune than I am at some in some ways to the Lebanese scene. So as a fellow Lebanese, <laughs> what is it like to be uh, very distant and very isolated, especially having witnessed what we witnessed a few months ago? How does it feel like to you? Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And I will say... I think in the last episode of the podcast, you kind of talked about this as well. And, you know, when the Lebanese revolution was happening, you felt there was this hope and this optimism. And obviously, as you said, I am not Lebanese, but I spent most of my adult life in Lebanon. Uh, Uh, You're Lebanese now. (laughs) On the inside, I feel Lebanese. And. You know, to kind of witness that and see people coming together and extend themselves, you know, some some of the things that were so empowering about the revolution, people camping out, um, people ordering mana each for each other from abroad or all these things that couldn't even happen right now. And, you know, the kind the way that people really took care of each other during the revolution and ha- created this social cohesion that many said they never thought they would see in Lebanon. You know, I was living in Betroun and my friends there, they were saying, never in my life did I think when someone in Saida in southern Lebanon needed blood that I would go and donate for them. Mm. And to see that and to hear that and now now to kind of be together, but we have to be separate is really, it's, it's a big cognitive dissonance. I think it's uh, it's something that it's maybe even perhaps it's too soon to properly reflect on because these are emotions I'm only beginning to feel now, mm-hmm. uh, having spent a few weeks now in, in New York more or less alone, uh, more or less indoors. I I mean I was in Beirut up until late January, 
And that those months, those three, four months of proper euphoria on the streets of Beirut, and I mean, your story is one example of living in Betroun and caring about Saida in a way that's uh, that's almost unusual in Lebanese history, and it's positive, it's positive change. And that kind of intimacy, that kind of bonding on the streets, uh, very rarely could you go home and be alone. Mm. Very rarely would you want to be alone. And then now it's loneliness. And um, maybe it's a healthy thing. I'm not sure. Uh, I actually don't know if this is a, a, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reflect, to properly reflect. Are you more hopeful as somebody who who's now spent their adult life in Lebanon, if you go back later, that this country will emerge and will sort of be able to stand on its own two feet down the road? And do you anticipate from your own eyes? I know it's sort yeah. of... Uh, I'm putting a lot on you here, but that, <laughs> that, that the future is bright for Lebanon. Um, I mean, obviously, that's a you could write books on that subject. Um, I think for me, I've always, you know, when I moved to Lebanon, I was 24. So I was very idealistic and optimistic. And that was when the Syrian civil war had just started and there was mm. the Arab Spring. And I think that being there in that time and seeing all these people stand up, all these Arab countries stand up and want democracy, and then seeing most of those movements not succeed or succeed not in the timeline that we maybe thought. And again, Mm -hmm. I think that was definitely my idealism. I think that the Lebanese revolution, I'm really happy that I was there in October because I think that I am... I'm not as optimistic as I was or idealistic as when I was younger, but it was so powerful to see people come together in a way that I never thought was possible, especially Mm -hmm. again, after having lived in the region and seeing these, you know, seeing student revolutions squashed by, you know, dictatorships and other kinds of things. And to see people despite all of that. And I think that was the most powerful thing for me was to know that all of my friends that were Lebanese, like they knew what the protests were costing them. They knew Mm. that going into the streets meant, you know, half of my friends didn't even have jobs. Like they were all basically furloughed at that point, you know, like accountants, architects, jobs that you don't think of as being like that would easily come or go. And to know that, And then the other half that still had jobs and felt lucky, they decided to put that on the line. And that, like, just seeing another human do that, I don't think in America we've ever been challenged that way. Obviously, the pandemic is different, and I think we're seeing people rise to the occasion. But I was just so impressed by the Lebanese spirit that people knew they were in a terrible economy, and they were gambling it all for this future and this dream that they knew would maybe be impossible. Now, I apologize. I think you've probably answered this question in different outlets, but I've never asked you this question directly, and I'm, I'm very curious. What took you to Lebanon? And I know that, uh, I mean, I, I've seen snippets of this in various outlets. You've been interviewed about your Lebanese experience. But you tell me, what took you to Lebanon? <laughs> it's, you know, that's the million-dollar question. Um I studied Middle Eastern studies in university, so I was always interested, and I always wanted to live in the Middle East. Um, My roommate in college was Kuwaiti. Um, I had a Lebanese friend in college. You know, at the time, I was 23 and living in New York City, 
and I knew I wanted to live in the Middle East and I was looking at a map and I knew I wanted to learn like Levantine Arabic because okay. to me it just, it was like the easiest, I just liked how it sounded and Lebanon's on the sea and I'm a surfer. So I don't know, but it, so you, it fits really well. Because I'm going to now tease you a bit. The Mediterranean waters are not famous for their surfing, although you kind of did that, and we're going to get into that. Uh, Levantine Arabic is uh, probably, uh, you don't go to Lebanon to learn Arabic. And I'll ask you later whether or not you got your dialect uh, game on. And the third thing I love that you had a Kuwaiti roommate and you chose Lebanon instead. So that's the whole, that's the whole package. I'll get, I'll get close enough, but I won't go there. (laughs) I told him once that he was like, maybe the impetus and Faisal, he was like, I hate Lebanon though. And I was like, I don't know, Faye, I'm sorry. I don't know. This was your Lebanese friend or your Kuwaiti uh, roommate? My Lebanese friend was great. Yes. Okay, good. So he charmed you enough to take you across the globe. And I like that there's a little globe behind you during this episode. Oh, so yeah. That kind I was going to move but it, but I figured. Yeah, we can leave it on the ocean for now. It's okay. <laughs> so so you, you, in a way, I mean, it's just by accident that you spent that much time there. You weren't, you weren't planning on any dramatic move. This was just sort of an exploration. It could have lasted months instead of nearly a decade. That the, that the living there was sort of not, not anticipated. I think when I first moved there, I'd planned to live there for at least a year. And then okay. um, and then I got hired as the editor-in-chief of StepFeed when I was like 26, so two years later. And I'd been doing tech reporting. And I think because I was reporting on the tech industry, like in 2013, it was a really interesting time, especially mm. in Lebanon. That was mm. when they did the BDL circular. Um, yes, and yes. there were, like, Engami had just moved to Dubai. So there was a lot of kind of positive, interesting news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then I, I came back to the States at the, um, in like 2016 or 2017. And I love, I mean, obviously it was really nice being close to my family, but I just realized like my professional network and my friends and the things that I identify with as an adult are all in Lebanon slash the Middle East. So, and, and that, that's still something that I'm struggling with. Like that yeah. kind of, divided spirit you know but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned and you said it that that you sort of stumbled into a, a career if I might because I don't think you planned on being a journalist per se that kind of just happened while you were there with the step feet uh well, like sort moved, of a, yeah I yeah. moved to become a journalist but I don't think I ever um I'd been doing communications and I knew I wanted mm. to get into journalism I didn't think that I was gonna love it I, I it was kind yeah. of something to try for right sure. But you definitely tried it. And yeah. I, I, yeah, and you've done it sort of for, for quite some time now. Uh, I, I'm curious about the the travel journalism sort of world. And I, I know that uh, it's not, that's not the only thing you focus on, but that's sort of, that's my, when it comes to your name and your work, I know it mostly through that sort of that angle. And I'm, I'm just curious, the fascination about Beirut. I, going back a little earlier, I think this was 2009, if I'm not mistaken, the New York Times ran a piece, uh, Beirut, the number one city to visit. And mm-hmm. it's, I hope I got that. Maybe it's 2010. It's around that time. And I mean, it's very startling to see that on the New York Times. This is the number one destination. And I was I was lucky because I was giving a tour mostly to locals 
and some Lebanese uh, expats, mm. there wasn't a very big tourism scene. And uh, and you probably, you know this, uh, that Beirut had sort of emerged from the 2006 war in a very difficult sort of uh, terrain. Political, domestic politics was taking its toll on, on Lebanon. And then out of nowhere, it just sort of, out of the blue, Beirut is the comeback city. And, you know, you have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. You have Gulf tourists visiting. You have Europeans from the Gulf visiting. You have Americans booking Travelocity and these sort of uh, Expedia excursions to Beirut. And I was there. And out of nowhere, this tour that I used to give, which, which you've been on, became a big thing. And I was not expecting those numbers. I really wasn't expecting it. Uh, and just if you can maybe, maybe sort of take me on the journey of of travel reporting and and maybe your own sort of take on it and what is it exactly when it when you're trying to tell a story of a city to a foreign audience maybe what matters to you in particular as opposed to just sort of a generic you know this is what you should do and this is what you should see that sort of I think anyone could do that but what is it about that world and and what what is meaningful to you at least in the Beirut context mm. what did you take from that experience um i mean as a, I think travel writing is one of those interesting fields of journalism because when it's done well, I think it can be incredible. You know, some of my favorite pieces of journalism have been travel writing. And then there's also, it can also be a complete disaster. I don't think there's another kind of journalism <laughs> where you kind of either get like the best and the worst, you know? Uh -huh, and, yeah. And Lebanon, Beirut in particular, I think sometimes you know, we've all seen those kind of visit Lebanon pieces that will, that aren't really offering anything and give this kind of weird advice and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, for me personally, it started, I was, when I was working for Forbes, one of the editors that I used to put on TV, she knew I was moving to Lebanon to become a journalist. And so she said I could write her these like postcards from Beirut on my first impressions. Mm. And mm. Um, so I wrote her one and I actually kind of became like a little bit internet famous within five days of getting to Lebanon, which is, I feel like now I know it's like the perfect Lebanon introduction. Oh, so that, that was really early on in your stay that you did that yeah, but, within a week. So I wrote, it was like my kind of first impressions of Beirut. And a lot of people there got upset because they felt like if Forbes was sending a journalist, like it should be a finance economic look at Lebanon. And I mm, was like, mm. I'm a 24 year old. I just moved to this city. Um, but then I, I got more into tech reporting because it travel journalism is difficult to break into. I think you, mm. a lot of people want to do it. There isn't that much money in it. When you look at other kinds of journalism, like tech or business. Um, and I also think the pieces that I really like and the the kind of writing I like, it requires a time spent in that place, similar to, you know, your Walk Beirut tours, where the reason why people like that is because you're weaving for them these his history, your own yes, personal yes. stories, and you also kind of know what to highlight. And I think when I look at or when I think of the travel stories that I'm really proud that I of myself that I've done they're from places that I feel I really know about, either through reading and through time spent there, and then also just conversations with people. Mm. Um, and I think that that can be the hard part of it, is 
going to a place and then finding those stories or knowing those stories. But I'm curious because I, I mean, I've met so many uh, students turned journalists in, mm. in, in the Beirut scene. I, I think, you know, yeah, you know, all of them. Yeah. Journalist I mean, it's a, city. It's, it's a, it's interesting. It's a big circle, but it's also a very small circle at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's a transient one. And Beirut is usually the springboard. I mean, yeah. a good example is the Daily Star. People just sort of enter through that internship yeah. program. They become journalists and then they take off. Uh, but travel reporting in that kind of world, I don't know, actually. I know maybe I can count them on one hand and you're you're one of them. Why did you, I mean... Aside from that storytelling arc, which I think is maybe it's in a way it's a challenge for any type of journalism, but that kind of human maybe uh, approach as opposed to just generic bullet points, mm-hmm. uh, what, what what took you to travel reporting as, as opposed to, let's say, a standard reporter on politics or economics? What was it about travel that sort of uh, interested you? Yeah, I think... Um, I was trained as a fiction writer. And so for me, journalism was always this way to practice writing and get paid for it. Um, which is, yeah, that, that's like, I'm always like, I went into journalism for the money and people are like, you picked the wrong. I was going to say, well, well done. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. from my perspective, it makes sense. Um, and I think for me, travel writing, it's this opportunity to kind of have this narrative form Uh, you know, it can have you in it, you know, and a lot of times Mm -hmm. when someone is in a place like their own and their own understanding filtered into the actual facts is I think what can make it really um, shine. And a lot of times I do think we need political reporting. I think we need war journalism. I think we need business reporting, you know, I, and in that sense, I'm a journalist and I believe in the truth and the importance But there's also a lot in the media industry and, you know, I've spent the 12, almost 13 years of my career exclusively in the media industry and on the business and on the reporting side. And there is a lot that, you know, I've done interviews where people ask me, like, what's the media culture in the Middle East like versus America? And on one hand, you can easily say, okay, you know, in Dubai, you can't write about Etis Salat because they're not going to, or you can only can't write bad things about their telecoms company because the state owns it. But I could write a tra- a story about them in Lebanon and it's fine, you know? Oh, so the breathing space was, I mean, it, it, Beirut was the natural setting for it because you can explore that more so yeah. as opposed to other but cities. I, but I think with, and to continue with that idea, I think in all kinds of journalism, you suffer from that. Like even in America, you know, Washington Post is owned by Amazon. There's, yeah. I mean, not, they're owned by Jeff Bezos, but there's no way that they're doing investigative reports into Amazon with Jeff Bezos as the the kind of head of the company. So I think that for me, I've always been motivated by people's stories. And I feel that there's a, there's a specific mm. truth in a human story that I've always found really beautiful. And that I think is what has taken me to travel journalism. Sometimes I feel like I don't necessarily fit in the travel bucket, but, um, what, that, is, what is the, what is that? What is the travel bucket? Well, you know, I mean, 
there's you know like you like, don't you don't have any scars to show is that the... <laughs> well there's there's like a whole world of travel journalism that you might not there's like the points people who report on how to like fly around the world or... oh i see that kind of more pretentious take on it yeah that... okay okay yeah. i mean i don't i don't want to say that because i interviewed them and they're all very nice people tend to be really nerdy but mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. If you if you put me in a lineup of travel journalists, there's and then there's the kind of luxury, you know, yes. travel to visit a hotel and be like, these linen sheets aren't to my standards. Um, right. So, <laughs> Although it's interesting because Beirut caters to that audience, too. And definitely. I, I think that may have been at some point a very sizable market, at least when it comes to regional uh, tourism to, to Lebanon. I mean, that's always the thing about Lebanon that's so fascinating to me. It's, you know, the on one hand, you have like the Four Seasons and the Phoenicia and then like less than a mile away, you have places where they the like electricity is intermittent and it does not look like that. You know, and I don't think there's a lot of cities in the world that are still like that. You know, I I mean, this will be uh, maybe uh, for the audience listening and watching, I think this will make sense. I, um, I have met many, uh, many guests on the tour and also just sort of visitors, but they're not they're They tend to be European or American or Australian, uh, that they just booked in the Phoenicia hotel without really realizing what that is. Oh, they just, really? they got a deal and they ended up in the Phoenicia. And I'm, uh, I mean, of course, you know, this, the name kind of, you associate that with, with luxury and, yeah. uh, um, Sometimes the deals are really good, becomes cheaper than other other sort of expensive hotels in Beirut. And I remember uh, somebody uh, asking me if they could take a service to the Phoenicia. <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't, I've never heard anyone sort of tell the service or servicen a Phoenicia. <laughs> I told him, you know, it's better if you just give a location nearby and walk <laughs> it because you're not going to pay 2,000 lira to get to the Phoenicia. <laughs> They're going to charge you 10 times. Hundred times that, but it's. I mean, it's. It, but you're right. It. it um, Beirut is is that kind of place where you can have extreme sort of uh, luxury next to very uh, very and and even the Phoenicia itself. I mean, there's the. It's part of the Green Line, and there are abandoned hotels next door. Case in point, the Holiday Inn right behind it. And yeah. That's the view of half of the hotel. So you're right. There is that kind of uh, very sort of sharp contrast in the city. But I, I want to ask you the uh, the draw to Beirut in your experience. Was the story part of the draw in that were people curious about Lebanon itself when it came to, to your sort of uh, from your side? Or is it really just the let's go have fun. We want to party. We want to, you know, just have a great time. Uh, the history and that kind of stuff is less important. We just want to have a good time and go kind of like a party destination you mean with um with visitors or with outlets like pitching stories about sorry with outlets with with uh with outlets and what they sort of uh what they were curious about as opposed to your own personal there's kind of two two approaches or let's say three there's the good one that people have read a lot of history and they know lebanon is this kind of artistic center, cultural center, um, where there's lots of interesting things coming out of there. Then there's like the ones where they really want, especially, you know, when the Syrian civil war 
was beginning or in the yeah. middle, people really wanted the like, oh, I'm going to a winery in the Becca and just a mile away or like a few kilometers away is right. like the Syrian border. That kind of gonzo. Not, I don't even think gonzo is the right word for it. I, I consider that a bit exploitative. The kind of like, oh, I'm here in the luxury and then here's this terrible thing that's happening, but I'm not actually in danger. Right. right. Um, and then I think the third would probably be the kind of fun. Uh, definitely Lebanon has an, an international reputation for being a fun country. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I'm always surprised having lived in Lebanon and always say, no, I live in Lebanon, how many people, you know, it's kind of, you must get this all the time. Like you kind of get this 50, 50 reaction. Like some people think that you are living in a bomb shelter. And then some people think that you are just partying all night and in the I, bomb shelter. Yeah. In the <laughs> bomb shelter, yeah. just like of <laughs> craziness. And it's, I, I can't imagine many other places in the world have those kind of dual images. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And I, I mean, it's probably it's the most obvious example. I think there are I mean, I've been to Sarajevo and Sarajevo has a, a little bit of that, but it's sort of it's it's in perspective and it's locked. It's a brief period of time. Lebanon, it's existential. It's been decades and decades and decades of this kind of rift. Have you noticed one thing that I found was interesting with the coronavirus is just my Lebanese friends and like the group chats that I'm on, it is like an entirely different reaction than people in New York. Like there, everyone <laughs> is like doing these like like group meditations and we're cleansing the world. And like all the Lebanese people think this is like a very good, not good. I mean, you know, but they're looking at this in a very optimistic way. Whereas I feel like Americans are just running around like no idea. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, from my own, my own experience so far has been in New York and Manhattan. And to me, that is, be, I mean, it's it's so extreme to see this city asleep uh, yeah. and, and properly asleep. Um, but then you see, I mean, I haven't, I left Beirut late January, so I, did, I didn't. Were you there when, right before the coronavirus lockdown started? Yeah, my, so I was planning on moving back to the States on March 18th, and mm -hmm. I had to, leave early i left on march 11th okay so just really within days uh, a week or so yeah you know i i, I was going to ask you about the uh the photos i've seen of beirut the, no pollution which is insane i mean it's 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 really different and that's something i wish i could have seen on my own or at least breathed that relatively that's fresh nice. air yeah yeah i uh, you know i i my favorite time of the year is february partially because it's cleaner to a degree. It rains more. Mm. Uh, the dust is settled. But that's just like a shower or two, and then it goes back to that usual uh, pollution, that sulfur, that yellow haze yeah. over the country. That's it's just not shocking not to see that. Walk out of Rafiq Hariri. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't – I mean, I, I don't know what that would be like to yeah, walk out. What does it smell like at Rafiq Hariri right now? My guess is it still has a stench because <laughs> that <laughs> that trash mountain is not going away because That's of the pandemic. True. That's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. It's not as fresh of a stench. <laughs> you know, I part of the reason actually I, I wanted to talk to you as well is because I I like when people visit Lebanon and then sort of they they find themselves in the country in, in very creative ways, and uh, we don't know each other 
that well, but we've, you know, we've seen each other a few times and I didn't know, I had no idea that you're a surfer. Then I see a photo, this like crazy photo of a surfer. I think it was in Betroon, if I'm not mistaken. It's just sort of you riding a wave. And I'm I'm like, that I know that girl. <laughs> what is she doing? And I I there are people that try to surf in Lebanon, but just not known for it. It's there isn't a there isn't a big scene. And I've seen the last few years that there's a scene mm-hmm. that is beginning to grow. And I think you're part of that. You're part of the reason that people are surfing more. Can you just tell me about that world? Because I don't know anything about surfing. I, I, I don't associate it with Lebanon. I associate it with California or Hawaii. I don't think of, you know, the Mediterranean coast as a surfer-friendly coast. Is that something you just sort of wanted to see if it would happen and you tried it and it worked? Or did you sort of, did you always want to do that and you sort of just said, yeah, of course, the Mediterranean, that's where you go to surf? That's the... Well, I grew up surfing because my my mom is from California, so I'm like a third generation surfer. Um, third generation surfer. That's yeah, <laughs> I mean, my, gran- my grandpa taught me, and my grandma taught me how to. Oh, that's board. crazy! So, really? That's really oh. cool. Southern California. Um, yeah. But when I I was never like in my family, we always surf when we have reunions or we get together. Like it's just a part of my family's culture. My mom. <laughs> it's a nice um, culture. Yeah, no, it's really, I, as a kid, like I never thought it was that big of a deal. And then like, oh, I have this memory with my grandfather. We were like looking through some old surf books and he's like, oh, that guy was our neighbor or like, you know, and we're like, whoa, like they were living it in this time when it became popularized, like in the fifties and sixties mm-hmm. for the whole world. Um, so when I moved to Lebanon, I was, I always knew how to surf, but then I think when I was Around that time, I realized that like nature and uh, the water was really important to me, especially having lived in New York City for six years previously. So I the water was a big draw for me in Lebanon. And then the surf scene there, I became good friends um, with Paula Boss, who's the surfboard shaper who he actually was just featured in surfer magazine it's amazing (laughs) it's so cool so i became good friends with him and his girlfriend fernanda and then the surf scene there is just really it's an amazing subculture because you know people first of all it's all different people from all over the country um tends to be wealthier because surfing in general is like a wealthier sport Mm. but in terms of religious diversity it, it is and People like growing up in New York here, it's cold water and there's competition, especially in the summer for waves. in Lebanon. People will be like, Hey, the surf is going to be here tomorrow morning. I'm coming to your house and I'm picking you up, you know, and everyone is kind of like, I never had a car when I was in Lebanon and I would get rides to GA. I would get rides to Sheka people. And you'd ask a friend and they'd be like, no, I can't give you a ride, but my other friend will take you. Um, so it's just easier in that sense to get it, to get your surfboard and go. Yeah. Or just, I think because it's a new, it, there was surfing in the seventies, this guy named Mustafa in GA was a surfer, mm. but then people say like, because of the war and just everything that was going on, it wasn't, it was like 10 or 15 years ago that it kind of started again. And a lot of in Batroun, it was mostly windsurfers. In GA mm-hmm. and Beirut, it was mostly like uh, snowboarders. But let me ask you, is, I mean, this is a very amateur 
thing I I know very little about surfing, and it's uh, you're a third generation surfer, so I can ask these questions. Um, is it better to have turbulent weather in the Mediterranean to surf? Because I assume the summer months it's a very calm experience. Well, that's a good question. That's the hard part about learning how to surf in Lebanon. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Because the thing um in general surfing is difficult to learn not because the sport is inherently more difficult, it's just that you are so dictated by nature. So if you want to learn like going on a week trip to Sri Lanka, that's great. You're going to learn a lot in that week, but mm you every time there's surf you have to be willing to go surf so right that's the difficulty and then and it really because surfing because it's this combination of like athleticism but then also balance and paddling and you can do other exercises to boost all of that but really surfing consistently is kind of the only way to get better like with any sport but in Lebanon because of the Mediterranean, like in the winter is the best time for it. Right, right. I would assume that because even in the winter, it's it's still not crazy waters, but at least there is some drama. Yes. And so the thing, the one big drawback of Lebanon surfing is apparently Cyprus blocks. So it's called like a wind. Mostly it catches these kind of wind swells that, that travel mm. all across the Mediterranean and they hit um, Lebanon and Israel and Israel isn't blocked by Cyprus. So the way that the wind swell comes across Cyprus blocks the direction that you want the swell to come to hit Lebanon. So right. that's why Israel has like a more, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the, they get more waves than Lebanon mm. because of Cyprus, which is like funny because I feel like in the Lebanese surfing scene, it's like everyone knows it, but no one will talk about it. Like, <laughs> No, but I mean, so in other words, the western coast of Cyprus would be more active because of that kind of... Uh... No, so it has to do with how far also the the waves travel. So I... Uh-huh, I think uh-huh. be, but to be honest, I don't think... I don't think that they travel far enough. So like Interesting. most of the places in the world where there's amazing surf, it's because it's... The waves have traveled like a very far distance. So they have a lot of power. But the problem is like with a wind right. swell is that yeah. you're also getting the wind with it. Whereas like mm, in mm. Hawaii, a swell has traveled thousands of miles and you don't have a storm at the same time. Whereas in Lebanon, you're pretty much, if you have really good waves in the winter, you're usually in a storm. So then it's like windy. So then you have a very short window of time that the conditions would be really good. And that window of time means, I'm guessing, it's sunny, it's not raining, there's no storm, right? No, I mean, not that you you let go of that part of it more. Oh, okay. Um, it would be like usually in the winter you would get like a three to six day swell, and kind of like the two days on the beginning or the two days on the end would be good. In the middle, mm-hmm. it's just so stormy, and there's no like shape to the waves because there's so much of a system that it it doesn't work. Right. Now the winters, I mean the the water's not very appealing and the Mediterranean it does get cold. Nothing like what it, nothing like the Atlantic here. I mean that's a different no. story. But are you the only person I mean are you the only group sw- swimming and surfing at that time of the year because I don't see anyone in December jumping into the water enjoying their time. I mean is it like a is it in a way a lonely experience? You know, that's actually where I will say one point for Lebanon. 
is that it's really hard to be lonely in Lebanon. Like, it, <laughs> I feel like whenever I would go, like in Batroun, I was living like 10 minute walk from the surf and I could see it from my uh, flat window, which was awesome. Mm. So I would like walk down and sometimes I'd be like, oh, okay, l- looks good. And invariably, like a friend comes and watches me and not even contacting them. They just see the waves and then they kind of join you. And I think that communal aspect of it is in general in surfing, it's really nice. In Lebanon, I think because the scene is beginning, it's even more. Whereas in places where it's really popular, there's more competition and stuff. Right. right. Um, But yeah, in general, I also think Lebanon is a very communal there's a communal aspect to the culture and to life there i like i like that you can't even go surfing alone even if you wanted to yeah you have people showing up surfing with you <laughs> i remember like the first one of the first times i went to jbel i was like on the beach reading and this like family came up to me and they're like do you want to sit with us like are you okay and they like felt <laughs> so bad for this like lonely foreign girl <laughs> Little did they know that you're a third generation surfer, travel <laughs> reporter, you know, just you you wanted some time alone. <laughs> yeah, which is impossible to get in that. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I'm going to flip it now to the U.S. Uh, and just I know you only came back less, less than a month ago. And w- was that was that a planned trip to come back to America? What did you sort of. Were you ready to leave Lebanon or is it something that came up and you decided, you know, I, I need to move back? Um, I think I'm very, cl- I grew up in a close family and so it's always been hard for me to be far away from them. And I think the past couple years, you know, as you get older, the kind of, I'm like, oh, it would be nice to live in the same place for a few years and right. have right that kind of closeness with family. I also um, wrote the first draft of a book that is about my hometown and about the farming culture here. Um, Cause we're one of the first um, family farming areas in the U S. Uh, uh-huh. And so those, those two impetuses kind of, it, it's hard though, because I'm sure you feel this as well. And in many ways, I feel like that's a very Lebanese experience, the kind of being pulled between these two things. Like, Sure. I, yeah, I, I felt that my time in Lebanon, it, I needed to reconnect to the U.S. because I've, I'm sure you've met these kind of international people or expats that kind of, you know, they bounce around from place to place. And then by the time they're like 50 or 60, they aren't really attached to anywhere. And they'll say things like, oh, the sushi in Kenya is the best. And they're like, <laughs> what does that even mean? You know, and. And I'm not nothing against those people, but I just don't I don't want to be that, you know. So, I mean, I'm, this is maybe you tell me this is too personal and you as you say as much as you'd like. Did Lebanon ever properly feel like home after spending that much time? Because I, I like the way you're you're describing it. It's almost like um, there's a window where you can be fairly free and do as you wish there but you know that there's a sort of a bedrock waiting for you and that the moment will come when you return or or did you actually feel like no I could I could perhaps stay in Lebanon and I don't know maybe settle down with a Lebanese surfer and have your own sort of a surfing family from Batroun I mean was did it ever feel like it would be home really home that you 
that you would leave New York and the States behind? In a strange way, I think that that was the decision that I made moving mm. back. I did. I think I realized, especially living in like I'm from a small beach town and living in a small beach town and realizing like, I mean, you know, I obviously don't look Lebanese. Everyone knows I'm a foreigner there. And then but you look more Lebanese that, than I do. And I, <laughs> I I mean, you're you're I barely pass, but you can pass. You're I fine. So I don't think so. People do you must get that a lot, though, I would imagine. As I age and expire, I look more, I think, of just the belly kind of gives it away now. It's like, oh, yeah, he's from that part of the world. <laughs> the, the extra hair that's kind of coming out of nowhere, I think it's finally coming back. I don't look Finnish anymore. I look, uh, you know, rubbish. <laughs> it is funny that monoculture, though, like how people can so easily say, like, you are Lebanese or you are not, especially as an American, because mm. that would never be something that I would think or say, but because it's a small place, you can actually. Sure. Um, but yeah, living there and thinking, you know, and in my town in Southampton, we have a new mayor. There's all these people that this last summer I was visiting and my mom's friends were trying to get me on all these environmental groups to clean our ponds and kind of thinking like, okay, I want to have an impact on my community. And if I'm in Lebanon, you know, especially in Betroun, there were a bunch of developments happening at the beach and I would like go and I would yell at them. And, and yeah. it, it got to the point where it's like, I'm either committing and this is my life or I'm going to move back to the U S because I don't want to be that angry foreigner yelling at Lebanese people and telling them what to do kind of, you know? Interesting. So you, in a way that it, it, it's a moment that passed naturally, it kind of ended on, on, on your terms, to a degree, you saw that this was the time to, to leave and, and you left. Yes, yes. I, I actually read that piece about from the Southampton uh, Press. There was a little article that I saw about you returning yeah. home. You know, it's yeah. funny when I see these things. I, I keep like, I know this person. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, I know her. <laughs> so you keep showing up in, in interesting ways. And that's what actually triggered me to uh, to get in touch when I was like, oh, yeah, she's here. She's in New York. But it speaks to the moment that you're not so far away. Mm. We have we have to do this this way. And yeah. uh, I, I'm just going to wrap it up with asking you, do you see that your future in, in the States will revolve around this type of storytelling? Because I know travel reporter means you have to, it is, you have to, in a way, go. You have to travel. Mm. Are you sticking to that or is it sort of uh, more on the sort of home and the maybe the going back to your roots in a sense, fiction writing and sort of taking care of more more immediate concerns here? I do think that was one advantage I had of being a travel journalist in Lebanon was that anything I pitched to any American publication, it's kind of automatically sexy because it's so far away, you know? Um, right. Right. Like they wouldn't necessarily send someone to like I did a story about like the best Menaish in Lebanon. And like it was a really fun, cute story. But there's no travel editor that's going to have me do like the best New York pizza, you know. <sighs> sure. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I think my plan right now, I mean, I do want to kind of continue my connection to the Middle East. So I've been trying to do more. I mean, now because of Corona, everything's kind of upended. But the original plan was to do, to kind of do the, like a bigger business golf story that would kind of keep me mm. trapped to the Middle East at least like once or twice a year. Um, 
and try to do then like one read, go to a place and do a few travel stories there. Um, so you still, you anticipate that you'll be connected to that part of the world. Yeah. I don't see, I mean, I would like, I, I just don't, I have too many connections to the the Middle East. And even now, like I'm finding myself like I'm more used to that paradigm than I am to the American one. You know, when I talk yeah. politics with people here and they're talking about this reporter or like this, this Senator, I'm like, I don't have that history of them, you know, but like, let's talk about Hariri and, you know, <laughs> like, well, blot, like what's his deal? You know, like I don't, connect to that the same way so I think it would be I would be sad if I didn't continue that domestic issues in in America are domestic they Mm -hmm. they're very local very very confined Lebanon it's the world any local affair has a has like this global tentacle so religion blood what he says about anything what he says about the coronavirus will have that kind of you know global uh reach yeah, there is that interesting thing about Lebanon where I feel like in some ways people there understand the kind of like international life a lot more. Like I feel much further from my friends here with that part of my life than I do in Lebanon because I think America, yeah. even though it's this world power, it's very localized and very domestic focused um, yeah. in a way. Well, I, I, I'm really happy that you were able to do a number of things. First, you could fulfill your family obligation by surfing in Lebanon. That's very <laughs> You also found a way to explore storytelling on your terms. And I like that you you want it to be reflexive in the in the experience and sort of have a personal stake in it, which you which you did successfully. And I'm I'm really happy to know that you will have continued ties to that part of the world. And I look forward to sh- sort of catching you in different outlets over time. Yeah. Um and I, I, you know, if it's a first draft, I hope the, I hope the novel comes out soon enough. We could talk about that yeah. at some point. So, Alexandra, thank you for taking the time to do this during the middle of coronavirus. And I hope to see you in person soon enough. Yes. Thank you so much, Ronnie. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon, or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>